I don't want her to take my picture. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Read Aloud. Um, you're welcome to move up since we're kind of a small audience today. And um, we do have refreshments in the back. If you'd like coffee or tea, please help yourself. We've got a really wonderful program for you. I'm very happy to welcome Candace Stout and Cody Hendren from the Department of Art Education. And they're going to be reading from a book called Flower Teachers. And I'm very eager to hear more about that. So thanks to all of you for coming. The readings that we share today are drawn from the narrative of 30 public school teachers who have spent their careers in teaching in the visual arts from, uh, in classrooms from Montana to Maine. Uh, they're part of an ongoing phenomenological study of the classroom teachers' interpretations of their lives in our public schools. Um, I call them flower teachers because they began teaching in the late 1960s early 1970s and uh, continue through today. In fact, they are on the brink of retirement. Several of them retired last year, several more this year. So about half of these 30 teachers are, are still in the classroom, but uh, looking forward to uh, a very soon an active retirement. Um, I'd like to begin by reading from chapter one, which is a, a, introduces the context of the research study. And then uh, all of the readings that we share after that chapter are, in, are the narratives of the teachers themselves, who, by the way, they're written narratives. And by the way, uh, most of these teachers said, uh, I can engage in this written inquiry, but I'm not a good writer. But I, I think you'll, you'll find that to be very different. And then, as I said, the, uh, the remainder of the readings are, will be their uh, eloquent narratives um, we will also articulate the questions that we pose to the teachers, uh, that, uh, those questions that they're responding to. So as I said, the first chapter actually establishes the context of the phenomenological narrative study. A generation of teachers is about to empty their desks pack their belongings, and close the doors of their classrooms for the last time. These are the veteran teachers who, from the 1960s through today, have dedicated over 30 years of their lives to teaching the visual arts in elementary classrooms, elementary and secondary classrooms across the nation. As one century ends and a new one begins, they are on the brink of retirement. These are the teachers who were educated and came of age in the late 1960s, and who first opened the doors of their classrooms in the 60s and early 70s. I call them the flower teachers, for they were part of that youth generation, donning their bell bottoms and mini skirts at 6 a.m. and humming the tunes of Simon and Garfunkel as they drove to school in their Volkswagen Beetles. Conservatively, each of these individuals has logged in some 60,000 hours of classroom instruction. Collectively, they have touched the lives of thousands of children. They are a waning generation of teaching professionals who, more than any before, have experienced a fast and furious flow 
of trends, issues, and reform movements in public education. They thrived on books like Postman and Gar Weingartner's Teaching as a Subversive Activity, Lowenfeld's Creative and Mental Growth, and Bell Kaufman's Up the Down Staircase, and Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. They were intrigued by the idealism in Summerhill, A.S. Neal's radical approach to child rearing. And when they entered their first classrooms, they witnessed firsthand the devastating effects of inequality, poverty, neglect, those things that they had only read about in the impassioned books of Jonathan Kozel, John Holt, Richard Wright, and Paulo Freire. These were the young teachers who deconstructed classroom walls, ushering in a new era of humanistic open education. They were the vanguard faculty who welcomed racial integration and stood waiting as the school buses boarded their students, carrying some to the suburbs, some to the projects of the inner city. They were the teachers who convinced the school boards, administrators, and parents of the essential need for the arts in the core curriculum of a school. They are the faculty who fought the hard-won battle for a multicultural curriculum. It was their commitment and effort that introduced African-American, Native American, Asian, Hispanic, and female voices into the arts in our public schools. They have taught in times of sadness and Vietnam, assassinations of political and spiritual leaders, the introduction of drugs and violence into the schools, and now the ultimate brutality of the 11th day of September and the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. They have taught, too, in times of prosperity, of innovation, and hope. In their classrooms, children saw humankind launch into space and walk on the moon. They have seen unprecedented advancement in science and technology and have ex experienced the proliferation of new schools, instructional materials, and means. Now, at the opening of a new century, as seasoned veterans and master teachers, they are experiencing the wonder of the World Wide Web and the social, pedagogical, and technological complexities that come with it. For this generation, the sweep of the educational pendulum has been long, deep, and pronounced. At the close of the 20th century, they are part of the capstone generation, a culmination and summary of the philosophy and practice of an era of American education. At the opening of the 21st century, they are nearing retirement. But before they bid their farewells, there must be some summary some meaning assigned to the richness of their individual and collective experiences. Most important, there must be some lessons to learn from these veteran teachers about children and life in our schools, about teaching and learning in a rapidly changing society, and not least of all, about these formative years in the field of education. Among the interview questions that, we pose to these, that I pose to these teachers is this one. During your own formative years in the 1960s and early 70s in secondary school or college, what were some of your experiences? Who were the people? What were the events that shaped your attitudes, values, basic assumptions, and philosophy about life and about teaching? In other words, what in particular was it about being a youth and being educated in the 1960s or early 70s that made you the kind of person and the kind of teacher that you are? So this first narrative comes from Ken Wilkie. He has been a teacher for 30 years at Riverside Elementary School in Princeton, New Jersey. And Ken writes this. So this is the thing that happened with us. Where were we when Kennedy was assassinated? That's the frame of reference. I was in the seventh grade in music class. 
It was three months after the March on Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King. It seemed like this. It was the point where you're coming of age, becoming aware of things. And here was a world that was extremely dramatic for kids developing awareness. Adolescence is always a challenging time, a time when you're going to question values and wonder where you're going. And here we had on television, in the streets, everywhere around you, a world that was changing, that was being challenged. It's as if the whole society was going through a period of adolescence. And so it was a very exciting time to be of this age. Going to demonstrations, going to rock concerts, being a vital part of political activities on campus. So what this did was make me look at the role of education. The teacher is somebody who is part of changing the world, of making change and helping others see it. We weren't just out for ourselves. We weren't just going out to get a job and make money. That was looked upon as selfish and not full enough and not noble enough. You know, people talk about going into the Peace Corps. And I remember I had friends who did this, and they had nothing to offer in terms of services or skills. They just wanted to go and do something. This is that sort of exotic ideal of going off and having a genuine effect, being a hero to somebody, being a hero to yourself, maybe. And I think that kind of steers you into teaching, to be some place where you can make changes, where you can make a difference in people's lives. And it's very exciting. The next chapter uh, asks teachers to reflect upon their earliest years in the classroom. And I'd like to share Carolyn Skeen's uh, reflections on her early years. She is now at Linden Elementary in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. She said, I taught art from 1965 to 1969 in a school that contained grades 1 through 8. The school was in an area that was rapidly changing from agricultural to suburban as was, was extremely overcrowded. I rarely had a class with under 41 students. One year I actually had 50 eighth grade boys in a room designed for a maximum of 35. It had only one sink, little storage, and nowhere to dry student work. My classes were back to back and I don't remember ever having a planning period. I taught the same 900 to 1,000 students every week all year. Class periods were so short that students barely had time to do a little art quickly set up for the next class and clean their hands. I was 22 years old and had lots of energy, but every afternoon I would come home, stagger to the bedroom, and fall across the bed like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop. I made $4,300 during my first year. I was never formally observed by my principal. I understood that he stood outside our classroom and listened to what was going on occasionally. We were also supposed to be observed by someone from the central office once a year until we received tenure. The first year, the personnel director walked briskly into the art room with a clipboard in his hand. It was Friday afternoon. The last students had just left. I was at my desk for the only time that day. I had closed my eyes, my head down on the desk, my mouth open, and my arms flung wide out. My hands dangled down off either side of the desk. I looked like roadkill. Wet student work was scattered everywhere. There was a week's worth of paint spills waiting to be cleaned off the counter. His visit was a short one. I only remember his making one comment. Maybe you should make your classes help you clean up. And one more from Sonia Pratt 
Southern Garrett High School, Oakland, Maryland. Sonia said, I was hired directly out of college in 1972 to start a new art program for grades 1 through 12 in a rural area of West Virginia. Full of optimism, high energy, and a dose of naivete out to change the world. Art was never offered in this area before. I started my day in one of two isolated elementary schools where I taught on alternate weeks. One was located in an old coal camp. I rolled up my windows and locked my doors to protect myself from both the coal dust and the miners as I drove around the tipple of the top of the hill where the school was. Stray dogs were always hanging around the school, and most days I would have to shout and swing my bag of supplies at the dogs to get to the front door. I had to carry all the essentials like scissors from school to school. Inside were four classrooms, grades one through four. I taught first grade on Monday, second on Tuesday, etc. I carried water in buckets from the first floor water fountain to each class. The children loved it when I came. They lived in extreme poverty and had very, very little beauty in their lives. They loved making art and were really uninhibited. They would applaud when I came into the classroom. I haven't heard applause since then. When I left that school, I had to erase, I had to race a coal train to get to the junior high school, which was about seven miles away. If I didn't beat the train, I had to sit and wait for 15 to 20 minutes for it to pass, and I would be late for my next assignment. If I were late, the principal would be at the door waiting for me and berate me for my tardiness. He said he couldn't see any reason for art in the public schools anyway. In the junior high, I shared a classroom with a health teacher who had never had to share his room. I was given a small student locker to store my supplies, and I was never able to, able to fill that. For all of the schools, I scrounged materials whenever I could find them. I asked for donated materials from friends, relatives, and parents. Every afternoon, I, hot, I taught high school art. Several years before my arrival, someone had passed away and left a house to the school to use to teach home economics, wherein the students would learn to run a house. I was assigned to teach art in the living room and dining room of this house and could use the kitchen for water and cleanup. My classes were small and the kids were enthusiastic. They would sit on the living room sofa or at the dining room table while I taught them about art and art history from single copies of my college textbooks and demonstrated from my own sketchbook. They were an attentive group. I had no discipline problems and some of them came from some hardcore situations. Everything I taught was new to them. I was well into the group of things when we left for Easter vacation. It was not an easy job, but I felt I was accomplishing so many things. On Easter Sunday, the junior high burned to the ground. Evidently, a student teacher was trying to hatch some eggs in science class. He had left a light on some eggs nestled in the hay. The hay caught fire, and the school was history. We had about four days off. Our schedules were rearranged, and I ended the school year teaching the junior high students in the second floor bedroom of the home ec house. Chairs were arranged wall to wall, and the heat was insufferable. I had only crayons, scissors, and papers to work with. I resigned at the end of the year. During that first year of teaching, I learned more about surviving as a teacher than I would ever probably learn in the life of my career. How's my time? The next uh, chapter is called Experiences the Stories People Live. And uh, here's the focal question that I pose to these classrooms. Could you share any particular stories about your real-life teaching experiences that might encapsulate or impart the essence 
of what it's been like to be a classroom teacher for the last quarter of a century. I'm looking for a true narrative of something that you experience within your teaching career, something that might serve as an embodiment of your teaching experiences. And first I'll share a short one by Sharon Henneborn at Ethel McKnight Elementary School in East Windsor, New Jersey. This is called Mixing Up the Sex Thing with the Art Thing. When I changed schools in my district, I found that many pages in the books in my new classroom had been stapled together by the teacher before me. I realized that I must step lightly around the subject of nudity. I waited until I had a student teacher who could serve as a witness in the classroom in case a problem arose. I started with the very safe Matisse blue paper cutouts. Finally, a child asked the question, are they naked? We had a discussion, and I asked, what do you think? And eventually, why do artists put clothes on the subject sometimes and don't at other times? They had very good ideas about studying clothing and people's bodies and realized that the clothes would interfere if the drawing, if the drawing of the human body itself were really the focus. I asked what they thought made some people comfortable with studying the pictures of the body and others uncomfortable. The most insightful answer came from a third grader who said, I think they get the art thing mixed up with the sex thing and they don't know how to react. And then one more from Laura McNeese Barrett from Holyoke Magnet Middle School for the Arts in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And by the way, that school has since closed uh, last year because of the lack of funding. It's a, a very sad situation. Laura's story is called Teaching Raoul. This year I taught a young man of Puerto Rican descent who was probably the most talented person I have ever taught in my life. He was a real cool kid, admired by his peers, a terrific athlete, and absolutely in love with art. We'll call him Raul, and he was in my drawing class. I had heard about Raul from friends who taught in his elementary school, and I had hoped to have Raul in the sixth grade, but there was no room in my school until the following year. As a seventh grader, he was good, but very undisciplined. His line when drawing was uncontrolled. I saved the first piece he proudly did in my room and challenged him to do better. Raul was in a race against himself. Highly competitive, he wanted to be the best. He was better than most of the others, but there was not a great deal, uh, not enough distance between himself and the wannabes. The question was always there for the others. What did Raul do? Which one is Raul's? I held his first drawing up on a regular basis and then the second to compare with it, and then the third and so on. After his third drawing was complete, Raul hung his head every time I pulled out the first drawing where the lines were wild, the cross-hatching was crude, irregular, the composition not strong enough. One day, not long after Raul came to my class for a still life, I put out colored blocks on a white cloth. Raul went wild. He saw the reflections of the colored blocks bouncing off the white fabric. He ran around to the other three tables and excitedly challenged the others to see what he saw, and they did. I pulled out bottles and filled them with water. Raul immediately saw what happened to the stems of the flowers when they pierced the water and excitedly showed the others. He was hooked. They were hooked. From then on, I learned from Raul. I heard him describe to other students what he saw. I found things harder and harder for him to draw. I had to think of how I would present 
a drawing challenge so that not only would everyone else understand, but so Raoul would be challenged as well. He grew by leaps and bounds. I saved every piece he worked on, whether during school or during my weekly office hours, or when Raoul stayed through to 5 o'clock while I had in-service training for other teachers in my room. His drawing ability soon exceeded mine. Raoul won contest after contest, including a gold key in the National Scholastic Art Contest when he was in the eighth grade. I told him that I would buy his drawing for the $100 offer if, for some reason, one of the sponsors did not pick it up. I discussed it with his father, who approved. The drawing came back from the contest unsold and went on to be hung in the citywide art show. Raoul brought his family and friends to the opening, and a proud Raoul stood before his drawing and asked me to be in the photo with him. I've known enough cool eighth graders to realize that this was an unusual request, and I was delighted. Several weeks later on class day, Raoul received the award for outstanding achievement in drawing. In addition to the usual gold charm awarded by the school, I purchased Raoul a handsome portfolio into which I placed every piece of art he had done at the school complete with beveled mats. I spoke about Raoul and about how much I had learned from him, how much everyone had learned from him, and how he had presented a challenge to me that I welcomed and enjoyed. He hugged me in front of his peers, and there were tears in his eyes. About an hour later, the guidance counselor came to my room and asked if she could talk to me. Apparently, Raoul had gone to her for guidance. He told her that I had given him everything and that I had even bought his drawing the one that he could have given to me. And now he was left not knowing what to do. He wanted to give me something for all I had done for him. What Raoul didn't understand was that I didn't need a drawing to remember him, but that a student like him comes along maybe once in a lifetime, and that what I will remember him with is deep in my heart and not framed on a wall. Raoul has no money to spend on a gift for me. I need nothing. I told my town that what Raoul could do for me was to make something of himself so that I could once again recognize what an amazing person he was. I think I've got time for one more. Um, during the, the time that I was conducting this research project, um, the tragedy at Columbine occurred. And it so happened that one of the teachers who was a participant in this project was at Columbine during that tragedy. So the title of her piece is The Art of Healing at Columbine High School. Barbara Hirakawa, um, who is originally from Littleton, Colorado, she wrote this piece July 6, 1999, three months after the Columbine shootings. This question that you have posed to me, Candace, was a hard one for me to focus on this spring when I started this project, but now it has become simpler after the shootings. Though I can't answer exactly how yet, there is no doubt that the event that will be the most pivotal when I look back on my career will be what happened at my school, Columbine High School, on April 20, 1999. It is just starting to sink in now that none of us will ever be the same, that it would have been fundamentally changed in many ways. I have been in a fog of sorts since then and don't know yet when I will come out of it. But realizations have already begun to make themselves known. One is there is a reason I became the kind of teacher I did, and that was so that I could survive the challenges that I have had to face and will have to face for the rest of my life. I have been able to see how important I am to kids, 
past and present, and how important they are to me. I have received phone calls and letters from students I had 20 years ago, many of whom I had lost touch with. It was driven home how much of an influence we have on the lives of our students, often without knowing it. Many have visited since, and the hugs and tears have done a lot to help the healing process begin. Months later, the events of that day still seem like a bad dream. Each morning when I awake, sooner or later I remember that this really did happen, and then adjust my brain again to that reality. I would like to write not of the horror and the sorrow of the loss, but how we began to heal with it. There are no answers, there, but there are solutions. Paramount in that dealing and coping and beginning to heal has been the role of the arts. In what is called visual arts standard-based education, we have our first standard, which deals with art as a language and a means of communication. The other art subjects have similar standards in their list. As art educators, we have all seen the success of students as they discover that possibility and the voice to say something they have never been able to say before. What we have discovered through our experience these past few months is the power of the arts to give us voices to express the depths of grief and horror, to give us a means to speak the unspeakable, and by doing that, to begin to heal. Because of our commitment to and success with the Artists in Residence program here at Columbine, the administrators and artists were determined to help us in ways that they could. In the first few days after the shootings, they wrote a grant to NEA and began formulating a plan to use the arts to help us. They organized a workshop for the kids the second week, and when we returned to school at Chatfield, every teacher had a packet of artists' names, what these artists could do, dates available, and contact numbers. Teachers who had never paid any attention to artists in residence had them in their classrooms to help the kids and the faculty get through those agonizing weeks. We talked, we played theater and dance games, pounded on drums, tentatively began letting some of the emotions out. The artists needed this as much as the students because they had a strong connection with our school and felt the need to be there. Emotions were raw, but we all had some laughs. It was an amazing thing to watch other teachers discover what those of us in the arts had known all along. My colleagues and I who have struggled with this program for years are now determined to take this show on the road to make presentations at as many conferences as possible about the capacity of the arts to reach our children. I can't help but wonder if things would have been different if Eric and Dylan had been in art. Last paragraph. For me in particular, the, visit, the visiting artists were a godsend. My students responded to Betsy and William more openly than they would to me because they were respected as artists. Betsy had them writing about the place where they felt safe, and it was wonderful to see those good memories replace the awful ones for a while. Quite a few students chose to do their final project on a safe place rather than their recent experience. When William came in, he had them make up uh, group sculptures dealing with catastrophe turning into opportunity. Some were beautifully abstracted representations of the idea. Most were so graphic and raw that they were hard to watch but the acting out in the discussions represented the beginnings of healing. Both of the artists returned to my classes several times to help with the projects and talk through solutions. The final products were beautiful and wonderful and hard to look at because the kids were so honest. We will have to, a show at the Logo Geary's next month, and they are anxious to show off their work. But to them, these sculptures, books, and collages are much more than a piece of art for a show. They are representations of their beginning to heal, from something no one of any age should ever have to experience. <laughs> Thank you. Cody?
So in reading my selections from this, I thought it appropriate that I speak from my perspective as this new generation. So the first I'd like to offer some quotes about the importance of stories in our lives. Uh, the first is by DJ Clandonen and FM Connolly. In effect, stories are the closest we can come to experience. A story has a sense of being full, a sense of coming out of our personal and social history. Experience, in this view, is the stories people live. People live stories, and in the telling of them, reaffirm them, modify them, and create new ones. Stories, such as these, lived and told, educate the self and others. And a second one from C. Witherell in, in Noddings. Through the poignant grip of a story and metaphor, we meet ourselves and the other in our mutual quest for goodness and meaning. So hopefully the significance of these stories to a new generation is apparent. The stories these previous generation of educators tell, they explain more than the who, the what, and the where. They tell the how and the why and place a new generation's hows and whys in perspective, in context. They affix them in the realms of possibility. We situate our positions, values, and responsibilities through rejection, reassessment, reapplication, and reaffirmation of narratives like these. Stories present the boundaries of known experience. They incite the urge and foster the imagination to move beyond known experience. <clears throat> the first I'm going to read is titled The Measure of Those Years. Remembering those early classroom years brings a blend of incisive, sometimes biting, critical assessment tempered by pride and nostalgia. In Sonia Pratt's words, those early years were pretty wild. I had one administrator say to me not long ago that he didn't understand why any of us who taught in the early 70s were still teaching. There were times of progression and regression. There were uncertain, unpredictable times. Most of all, there were changing times. Of all the perplexing social and pedagogical issues with which art educators, as well as those in all other disciplines, are wrestling today, most emerged and intensified during the 1960s and 70s. Educational equity, overcrowded classes, drugs and violence, the perpetual labor of constructing a relevant, democratic, and academically sound curriculum, the fight for understanding, representation, and respect for the visual arts as a discipline, and obtaining adequate resources, conditions, and facilities are among the most pressing of these. Today, few of those early difficulties have been resolved. Some have been ameliorated, some have festered and grown worse, some drag on unchanged. What is important and characteristic of the flower teachers is that they looked upon these difficulties as opportunities and pressed for solution throughout their careers. As Ken Wilkie said, the focus was on making change and helping others to see it. There were times to go do something, to remediate. Inadequacy and insecurity, frustration and failure, both imagined and real, were tempered for these young teachers by a stalwart sense of determination, responsibility, and accountability. As evidenced by their professional longevity, this generation maintains an audacious desire to succeed for their families who have believed in them, for their students and the parents who trusted them, and as they were driven by their times, for their own satisfaction in knowing they made a difference in the world. This second selection is from a teacher named Marie Schack, reflecting on her experiences. After September 11th, the world of our students is very different, and I do not envy their role of bringing children into the world and raising children in the future. I think it will be harder for them. I look at my own children, along with many of my students. They are a privileged group, 
and I fear it will be harder for them to overcome adversity. But on the whole, adolescents still amaze me with their zest, ideas, and passion for what is important to them. And after all these years, they still make me laugh, and luckily, I can still pull a few chuckles out of them. Parents are more educated. They appreciate the effort we put into helping their children prepare for college. They seek our advice and respect us as professionals. On the other hand, sometimes they are also less grateful for our time, effort, and commitment. Sometimes they see the extra things we do as just part of the job and to be expected. But we do it for the children, not for the parents. Sadly, I find parents more willing to make excuses for their children rather than to back up a teacher's concern. In the long run, the child loses, and often when they get to college and face a harsher reality, some of them are not able to cope. On the whole, it is usually not the teachers who disappoint you. You are there for them to teach and guide them. They are searching for answers about themselves and their world. When they are ungrateful, when they are less passionate about their work, when social life concerns dictate actions more than academics, when they resist opening their eyes to modern or abstract art, for example, I can accept this. I keep on going, keep on trying to edge them towards maturity and aesthetic fulfillment. The disappointment is cushioned in the fact that they are young and someday they just might remember what you were trying to get across. Through my advanced degrees, I have more of an academic awareness, but the bulk of my intuitions were formed early in my career. I love art history, so it was always important, and I realized the student's artwork was the result of a journey and a process, so critical thinking was always important. But it always has, and still comes down, to trying to help students live more human and enriching lives, become good citizens and good people. When I see a bird flying, I think of Matisse's paper cutouts. I want to give students experiences to enhance their living. I try to get them to see that sometimes, it's those little joys that keep us going through large troubles and times of stress. This philosophy has never really changed through teaching different levels in different towns, public or parochial schools, and through three decades of various art education movements. What is important in the end is the realization that students in my classroom are really learning new ideas, skills, and passions. It is reaching out to fellow faculty members, being a comrade. It is maintaining my vision of the student as my primary focus. It is supporting our program through research, community involvement, and close relationships with parents. Most importantly, I hope that the students who have passed through my classroom will lead richer, fuller, more human lives, having been touched by my presence. This is a selection from Sherry St. Pierre, titled, Why I Call Myself a Saint. <clears throat> One incident happened this year, which tickled my funny bone. In this elementary school, we must write report cards for art, music, and physical education. For one student, I wrote that when things did not go his way, he would go on strike and refuse to work. The next day, after the report cards went home, his classroom teacher came to my room and handed me a business envelope, saying it was from William's father. When I opened the envelope and saw a computer-generated letter, the hair on the back of my neck stood on end as I thought of the possible ugly confrontation with a parent that lay ahead. But to me, it was the funniest letter I've ever received from a parent. Apparently, there was an intense discussion between William and his father on why I was a hard teacher, why I called myself a saint, and why I called myself a doctor. I have enclosed the text of the letter below. Dear Dr. St. Pierre, I am writing to inform you of William's and my discussion of the report on his performance in art class. Thank you for bringing this problem to our attention. 
Please know you are not alone, and we have been talking to William about this kind of behavior. There are three things that William mentioned in his argument, in his defense. One, William said you are a hard teacher. I explained that I pay taxes to have teachers challenge my kids, and that Dr. St. Pierre is doing that. I pointed out a piece of artwork that William has hanging on our wall. I told him that he probably never thought he could make such a great piece of art until his teacher got him to do it. I also added that I am impressed with what he brings home, and he should look forward to the compliments. Two, he didn't understand why you were called a doctor. I explained that people can go through college and get advanced degrees, PhD for example. I told him that when people work hard to gain the status of doctor, they deserve to be called that. It shows accomplishment. I used his aunt, who was a dentist, as an example. Her patients call her doctor, not Mrs. Three, he couldn't fathom why you called yourself a saint. By using the telephone book, I showed him a number of names that begin with saint and explained that all these people were either born with last names that begin with saint or married into the names. I hope our discussion helps out. Please feel free to contact me if William continues to pout. Again, thank you for the report. Sincerely, Terry B. Biliaro. Um, this next selection is actually by Candace Stout, Bill in the St. Louis Cathedral. <clears throat> As part of the program of formal tours of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis, my classes were provided with a very competent, albeit very formal, docent. To begin our tour, she guided us around the cathedral's exterior like an art historian, pointing out the many classically Romanesque features. Throughout our 30-minute walk around the building, I brought up the rear, gently rounding up and prodding the stragglers among my 42 students. Although everyone was pleased to be on a field trip some 90 miles away from their school, there were those who were easily distracted and whose interest in architecture was understatedly scant. At the very fringes, I would always find Bill Thaley disinterested, lethargic, and ever bored. No matter how I tried, I could never get a rise from him, never a modicum of interest. After our exterior study, it was time to learn about the wondrous Byzantine interior with the largest mosaic collection in the world covering 83,000 square feet and including 41.5 million pieces of glass tesserae. The docent proceeded through the doors, up the nave, and stopped in the basilica's core, right under the massive dome ringed with colored mosaics and Romanesque-style windows. The sun was shining through one side of the dome, and the golden mosaics were sparkling, and even the most secular among us felt something of the spiritual in the air. So there were my students, what I thought were all of them, gathered and very quiet in the heart of this old church, waiting for the lecture to begin. As I was taking one last look around to make sure everyone was there, ready and listening, all of a sudden the enormous wooden doors at the back of the cathedral swung open and in walked Bill Thaley. Everyone was so surprised and so still, he had no idea we were there. He stepped inside the door and stopped, mouth open, eyes sweeping heavenward to the golden gleaming dome. In the hush of the colossal room, we all heard Bill's candid evaluation of his experience. Holy shit. There were no giggles from his classmates. There was no reproach from his teacher, no motion of shock or disapproval from the grave docent. Bill had taken in the full effect of the magnificent cathedral. He had been moved. Everyone knew it, and despite the indelicacy of expression, everyone agreed. This next selection is by Judy Williams. She's looking back and reflecting over her teaching experience. 
I know now that I cannot save the world, nor even give every student all that they need. What I have tried to do over all these years is to help both teachers and students realize that the ability to create and enjoy art is for everyone. The ability to draw or paint is not visited magically upon a selected few, but it is developed by study and practice. One community member actually told me he thought art was for the elite. He had a nice collection and considered himself one of the elite. There is a place for art in everyone's life, and it is a place filled with joy. My success stories are general. The former student, now the young parent, who tells me in the grocery store that he or she's painted a mural on a Sunday school room wall, or applied a faux finish to our living room wall, or visited a museum off somewhere, or drawn a portrait of her child, or bought some original painting for her home. Yesterday, when I went to a museum, the visitor's brochure was illustrated by a former student. Several former students have successful graphic design careers. Some are actors, whom I see occasionally on national TV. A few are art teachers. Some are factory workers and business owners. When I see them, they often tell me what they are doing, art-wise, and they call to ask where to find certain supplies. These are my success stories. Men and women going about their daily business of working, rearing families, serving their community, and enjoying the arts in their lives. And here's a final selection by Jeannie Sigler, reflecting back on her experience. Now I have taught long enough to see a scope and sequence of not only methodology, but also students as a reflection of the changes in their families and society. One of the most important things I've seen is a change in importance of art in our lives and in the lives of our children. From an expression of a young person's growth and development, art has become an avenue for expression and self-growth for all ages in society. In keeping with this, in my early years, teaching art in the public schools was seen as both crafts and fine arts. It seems that the discipline of art has now moved more into the fine arts area. Here in Montana in the last 10 years, Study in fine arts is now required for all high school students for graduation. This is a step in the right direction for our discipline. One of the greatest obstacles to teaching art, especially in the early years, was attitude. Why art? It's frivolous. It's an extra. Was a frequent criticism, particularly here in Montana, where resources were scarce and funds limited. Instead of looking at art as an important process in the growth and development of children, it was viewed as something classroom teachers could do with pre-designed assignments on Friday afternoons. In many districts, but not all yet, art is increasingly viewed as essential to the growth of our children. Throughout the years in our mostly rural area, the voting on local bond issues and on the election of school board members who set local policies have seen ups and downs. If our children are shortchanged when they are young, the consequences are devastating when they are older. I still feel very strongly that if we pour in resources when children are young and work with a smaller teacher-to-student ratio, the results can be outstanding. Fewer children are lost in the cracks on both sides of the curve, and the general population moves positively toward being productive citizens. And to finish my selections, I would like to end with a quote that Dr. Stout included by Elliot Eisner, professor of education and art, who said in reflecting on what he has learned throughout his many years in education, um, what he regards as both depressing and exciting, and I would counter as it's invigorating but also sobering. Education will not have permanent solutions to its problems. We will have no breakthroughs, no enduring discoveries that will work forever. 
we are stuck with temporary resolutions rather than permanent solutions. What works here may not work there. What works now may not work then. We are not trying to invent radar or measure the rate of free fall in a vacuum. Our tasks are impacted by context, riddled with unpredictable contingencies, responsive to local conditions, and shaped by those who we teach and not only by those who teach. Those who want something easier to do for a career should go into medicine. Yes, thank you. <laughs>